everyone, and welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And for the first of our season four hiatus episodes, we're joined by Margot Reddy, who serves as the show's production designer. Margot, it's lovely to finally have you on. Hello, it's very nice to meet you and be on. I'm excited to chat. So we got a lot of really lovely listener questions over Twitter, and we're definitely going to get to as many as we can. But before we do, why don't we just start us out with a quick summary of your role on the show? So what do you do and how do you do it? Um, I think that's a really good question. And people ask a lot about what exactly is a production designer. That name of that position didn't actually emerge until about the 40s or 50s, I think, in Hollywood. It was always hmm. the art director. Yeah. And then they added they added the production designer on top of it. I, I, I might be wrong. I think it was Gone, Gone with the Wind or some major film where they decided they needed this other role. So I was actually an art director for a long time, by the way, before doing this role. Um, basically, the art arm of film and TV making is divided into several departments. One of them is the art department, which is Basically, the head of the art department is the art director, and that's the sets that we design and build, and also the locations that we shoot in. It's not finding the locations, but it's how do you modify the locations. Mm. Another aspect is set deck, which is more parallel to interior design, which is kind of the soft furnishings and paintings and basically the furniture of the room. Another aspect is props, which is pretty much everything that you pick up and hold. If you drink out of it or shoot with it or play golf with it, it's a prop. And um, those are the three main artistic branches that the production designer, I technically oversee all those departments. I also technically oversee construction, paint, greens, which is the greens of the show, and in a, in a lesser way, special effects as well. So fundamentally, production designer is a kind of equivalent to the DOP in the sense that you're not necessarily attached to one department. You're sort of overseeing the aesthetic of the show with the exception of costume design. That's a completely independent wing. Sounds like a lot of responsibility. It It is a lot. It's really fun. Um, it's a lot of more meta responsibility. Uh, you still ca- try to keep an eye on the practical application and sort of how things are going, how project timelines are. But it's more a kind of a reading the script, thinking about the sets as characters in the show hmm. and how do you sort of work with the writers and the directors to kind of give the show a kind of visual meaning, a deeper meaning than just how to get things done. It's, it's ideally doing the job well, keeps an eye on practicalities of schedule and budget and timeline as well. Ideally. <laughs> budget. Uh, yeah. Pesky budget. That's our, that's our hope. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's very important, actually. I really feel that doing the production designer job well is actually being respectful of budget because any show you have has this kind of world that you could build, but you also have to build within the confines of what, what you have financially. So there's actually a creative component to, in some ways, budget constraints, like any in any practice, help you to come to more creative solutions. And I think The Magicians has always been well known for using our budget well. You know, we're not Game of Thrones. It's often spoken about how we are a, we're a decent budget show, but we're not a gigantic budget show. And, and one of the fun challenges is always those questions that come up and have come up in a lot of interviews, like, okay, in this, in this instance, we're doing the head of the dragon, but we're going to do the head of the dragon really, really well. Or we're going to do a smaller set, but we really want to make sure this set is exactly what we want. So those, those things do kind of influence creativity a lot as well. And we try to be as creative as we can within our, within our scope. Well, and I think that's true in a lot of creative professions and not even just professions, right? Like hobbies too, right? And yeah. the constraints in some ways make it, they sort of force you to be more creative. I think so. And, and 
being budgetless would not always be the best solution either. I think that it's everything has to have limitations on timeline. And, and so we work as well as we can. And so I would oversee each department. Um, we sort of get the creative machine going together with the producers and the director and the writers. And then we sort of follow through as it goes. One of the interesting things about designing episodic TV is that we start prepping the next episode when the episode that we're shooting starts shooting. So that makes the art director's role very important as well because we kind of, so my job is firmly entrenched in looking ahead and, and coming up with concepts and then you sort of you hand them off to our exceptionally creative team in general. I mean, I, I say this a lot and it's really true that we have an amazing art department and also props, set deck, paint. And if you don't have that, you, you don't do anything. I mean, just paint, for instance, if you don't have a fantastic paint department, you can design the most beautiful set in the world, but it's not going to live up to your expectations. So we're really lucky that all of our departments have been very excited about being on the show, have tended to, we've had crew come back season after season. So they get, as our show, as you know, is very deep and has a lot of lore and meaning and they get really used to what the show's about and yeah. understanding what we're trying to do. And it's, it's really amazing. Well, and I think that leads well into Danny's next question. Hi. <laughs> yeah. From what we've heard, your job is pretty collaborative, uh, mm -hmm. even by TV standards. Who are you working most closely with and how do these collaborations unfold? Well, um, there's a few dreams of that. And again, it is a really collaborative show. I actually think it's exceptional. I've worked on a lot of shows. I think this is my somewhere between my 30th and 40th job. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not as designer, but you know, I've worked my way through various roles um, in the art department. Uh, this is an exceptionally creative show. I think that the writers and our directors, the writers, producers, and our directors are always, are very close-knit and they tend to form, I wouldn't always say a complete creative consensus because at times there's different ideas of how we do things, but the communication level is really through the roof. Everyone stays in touch. Everyone's really transparent. It's a show where you feel very comfortable just putting an idea out there and seeing, you know, seeing throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks or not. There's times when I first started designing the show that I had, I'll, I'll get into it later, but a couple of just wild ideas. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to pitch this idea. But of course they're going to, you know, no one's going to go for it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Let's do that. So it's really fun. But I think the person I probably work the most closely with on an ongoing basis would be Chris Fisher, who's our producer director, who is from um, LA, but it comes up to Vancouver during our production season. And he's a very, very amazing director, but he's also a producer on our show. So he's kind of the the arm of the showrunners here who helps kind of steer the show creatively, make sure that we're staying sort of on point with the theme. And he also helps with, like I said, the more practical issues as well as like helping us decide where to expand our resources. And it's, it's fantastic. It's really, really fun. And we, we work together a lot. So I'd say that that's probably the one person I would work the most consistently closely with over the season. So the, the collaboration aspect of it is something that really fascinated me and I think the first time that I really thought about it, like in a deep way, was on um, 305, A Life in the Day, because yes. the like mosaic part of that episode takes place in a really kind of circumscribed space. It's a it's a small, mm -hmm. it's open, but it's a small set, and yet the look of it is really unique. The cottage has this like rustic country feel, and you see that in set dressing, like the blanket and the bench and things like that. Oh, yeah. The trees all have this light coming through them at angles that mm -hmm. could not possibly be natural, mm -hmm. but it 
it feels very magical as well. Even though you like kind of know it's artificial light, it just it gives it that magic magical feel. And then of course there's like the mosaic itself, <laughs> and tons of like visual metaphors coordinated across what I I assume are a bunch of different departments because you've got lighting and set deck Absolutely. and all those things involved. So how did that work? How do you make it not a jumbled mess? <laughs> <laughs> that logistically was actually probably our most challenging project for me thus far on the show and probably the most interesting. And also, you know, gratifying that it turned out to be such a beautiful moving episode. And um, I was really attached to that episode from the very first time I read the script. I actually was sitting at the breakfast table on a Sunday morning with my family reading the script and I broke down into tears about the reveal of like how you solve the puzzle is not actually solving the puzzle as you live this beautiful life together. That that is the puzzle, that the beauty of all life is not making this graphic or picture or one thing. The beauty of all life is living this great life and forming a relationship and a family and extending kind of learning empathy and love and kindness that's the solution to the puzzle. So literally my hair is still standing on end as I speak about it. And I know it touched so many people, which is fantastic. But so I was very, very attached to that from the beginning. And obviously being tasked to, we were also coming up with the graphics for what is the mosaic, uh, being tasked to kind of come up with ideas for pictures in conjunction with the writers of what is the beauty of all life was absolutely fascinating. Interesting note in the script, originally the mosaic was fewer tiles. we discovered pretty quickly, we did some layout diagrams and realized that you need a certain number of tiles to even look like anything. So (laughs) it went from say, I'm not going to do the math right here, but from like 68 tiles to it it literally became, so I think it was 768, but don't quote me. Mike Moore, the writer has the number. That's a number of pixels that you have in a resolution. So that that sounds right. (laughs) So we had to sort of, and we just, there was 13 colors and each one had to have an equivalent amount. I I, I won't get the math exactly right, but we had to have the equivalent amount of each tile in every pattern. So it was a fantastic math project. It was a really fascinating combination (laughs) of math and design. Then of course, it's a big logistical issue as to the shooting order and um, Quentin and Elliot doing all the different patterns and which one do you see first? And we can't have them on set changing out 700 plus tiles on the shooting day. So we had to kind of cut larger sections of the patterns together mm. so that the tiles were stuck together and place them in the sandbox and pull them out. And so the the sort of art directing of that was a giant undertaking, as well as the deciding which were the patterns. We had Easter egg patterns like a bunny and a key and a sunset, but we also had uh, Sarah Gamble was sort of mentioning mandalas and like more abstract patterns. And I think that came up in the script at one point is like, this could be this pattern doesn't have to be a picture. It might be something more abstract. So of course it's infinite. And how could you ever solve that puzzle? Um, but also the changeover on the cottage was really fascinating for me as well, because we wanted to show their life cycle where they come. There's the, you know, the old guy there who's like given up and he's left it into disre- disrepair. And then they start to form their life together. There's a child, the cottage grows and expands and gets more bright. And we added clotheslines and we've had the the plants actually grow (laughs) yeah we had sort of trees at the corner that just kind of got taller and um of course there's the really really sad scene about quentin's wife passing away and we wanted to establish the quilt um at that point where i think that he sort of lies down and there's you know we wanted to establish this quilt which we intentionally easter egg picked one that looked like mosaic tiles. So there was the quilt had this kind of geometric pattern that I really appealed to me. Um, 
that was in conjunction with our costume designer, Magali, where we were talking together about just different patterns that would be evocative of the theme. And then, of course, um, as they get older, the cottage starts to kind of fade and, and kind of gets, it doesn't get physically smaller, but starts to feel smaller. Some of the dressing around the mosaic kind of like shrinks back as their, as their life cycle comes and goes. So it was really a beautiful, beautiful project to be involved in. And, you know, we have eight day production schedules, so we had to be very careful about how we timed it all. And we didn't film it entirely in chronological order. So we had to be really careful and map out exactly where the sequence was. And what, what drove the bus in that was to a large extent, the greens that we had a lot of changing out on mm. trees and plants. So we, we kind of wanted to make sure that we could accomplish all that the way that we wanted to. So we were all, we really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> I think we did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could go on that about that forever. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of listener questions. Shout out to Nat and Fillory, bad guys, duh. And, a red in sync? Yeah, I don't, asking I don't know. About, <laughs> yeah, asking about your inspirations for the various worlds you build. When you start work oh, on a yeah. new world or a new set, especially if it's one you think might come back, where do mm-hmm. you start and where do you look for inspiration? Are there any sets you can tell us about where the inspiration is really visible or where it comes through really strongly? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, Firstly, I think one of the challenges of this show, and I, I suspect the show is fairly off the scales in this regard, is that we have so many worlds that we really, really want to distinguish visually. That's probably mm-hmm. the biggest visual challenge on our show is setting up. It's not just the set design. It's also the camera angles and the lighting that we want to help people who are watching it be able to tune in and know, okay, I'm in what we call the New York look, which is break bills, but it's, it's, it's sorry, it's, it's non-break bills earth. So we have looks for the first, sort of first three primary looks that we set up were earth non-break bills, which we call the New York look, which is um, very cool washed out colors. We don't use any reds or oranges. We uh, drain the color of that world. And then we sort of step up one level to break bills, which is more warm. It has a bit of warm light and ambers, but we don't go full yellow in break bills. And then the most colorful world is fillery. And there's also different camera types of camera movements and things that go with those worlds. So we sort of set that up as the three primary worlds at the beginning. And with those worlds in place, then of course the challenge is when you start introducing new environments, how do you set them apart from those? Um, And at times we've gone more extreme. Uh, an interesting example is the first episode that I designed for the show, we had the poison poison world or the poison room, mm-hmm. which was absolutely fascinating. I was just so excited when I read that in the script. But, you know, that had to feel very, very different and very poisoned. So I recall sort of pitching, I really like Stalker, that Tarkovsky feel, like super oh, yeah. bleak. This has to be bleaker than the New York look, bleaker than Earth. So I remember getting together with our DP, Ellie, and saying, you know what, I kind of think that what if we just drain the color like right out of this? And how about, you know, I, I showed up some images and, and uh, Chris Fisher, our director of that episode, like what if this was like Stalker where there's like ash falling from the sky and it's completely drained in color and there's like, you know, icky dead plants growing over things. So we did it. Uh, we didn't have ash falling from the sky. We had feathers 
And uh, that was really challenging to clean up, but I think worth it. So that was one example where we thought we're just going to lean right into this world. And then, of course, we went back to the poison world in season four with Zelda and uh, Katie. And that was really fun. We actually shot that at a different location. But because I think we set up the parameters of what the world feels like, Ideally, we could switch locations or switch sets, but set up those parameters of lighting and set um, set deck and the greens, and we know which world we're in. So yeah. that was one example where I think that we carried through with the inspiration. So yeah, so one of the things I wanted to ask was if you ever look, and I think somebody maybe brought this up in on Twitter too, if you ever look to Lev's novels for inspiration, like to the descriptions of those or... Yep. <laughs> no, there is an interesting, of course overlap and difference between the books and the show. Yeah, yeah. And um, I definitely, I love the books. I've read them. The writers know the books more intimately than I do. And it can be sort of, sometimes my mind will sort of try to seek back, is that how it was in the book or was that how it was in the show? When I'm thinking about something or returning mm. to a character or a location that isn't sort of super recurring, I'll, I'll have to look and flip through the books to go, okay, that was, you know, what is that? But I, I definitely, um, there's been times when we look to the books for inspiration in this season that I can't speak of, but that's really important. Um, yeah, it's a real mix, I actually think. I think the writers find a lot of inspiration in the books. And uh, for the Munchak, for instance, this really funny story is when we were had our, we usually have a phone call at the beginning to talk about, you know, the bigger set we're doing for the season. So for season three with the Munchak, I was reading the book and clocking that this was a kind of a recognizable boat. It's, you know, that it's like a in the book, it's more of a sort of typical schooner wooden boat. Mm -hmm. And when we had the call with um, the writers about it, I started sketching on the closest book I could find in the back. And I realized later that it was the actual book. It was the second book in the Magician series. So it's kind of fun to have the sketches for the beginning ideas for the Munchak in the book. We found some inspiration in the book, but also went a little bit sort of changed it a little bit as well. We added some different details uh, so that it became more of like expressed as more of the, the living entity of the Munchak became a bigger feature for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering something kind of vaguely. I think Arjun told us that they're the uh, metal grating somewhere on the Munchak like told the story of the quest or something Oh, like it that. did, yeah. 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 <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's great to kind of find inspiration just in the story and to use that to drive design because design can be driven from so many things. We talked about the story that the Munchak was a boat, it's a deer class schooner, but it's also got this kind of living heart, this wooden, you know, she, she I think of her as a she. Mm -hmm. um, she has this living kind of core where it's her heart is kind of making the boat. So we designed it such that the kind of roots of the tree in this, in the middle of the boat and the, and the kind of, canopy of the tree kind of made the ribs of the boat. But we also had this screen that was dividing the king's, at the time, king's quarters from the main living area. And it had three panels. So yeah, we designed them as the, having like a kind of deer running through the forest and a hunter chasing the deer. And then the deer basically turning into a boat and flying away because of course the Munchak does fly. So mm -hmm. I thought that was really fun to kind of show the story as I knew at the time, which is the boat... Um, the boat is gaining independence. The boat is female. 
there's the scene mm. where Margot kind of tries to emancipate the boat. So the boat sort of finding her freedom and learning to fly. So I think I probably told that to one person. It's kind of like, oh, you know, there's a reason, you know, if you look closely in the screens, there's a little story there. So that's that's really gratifying and wonderful that he knows. It, it might have been one of our other guests, but I don't know. I think I attribute a lot of the Easter egg things to Arjun because he told us our first Easter eggs from the show. So. It, absolutely. I, I think I also mentioned it to Brittany because Brittany was doing, um, maybe Brittany and Summer were doing the 360 degree tour, which was super cool where they come inside the oh, set yeah, yeah. and they use like Go, GoPro cameras. And I just looked at it again recently because, you know, just to kind of look at the interview, but they do the interview with a 360 degree. You can spin around and look at all the set, which is really fun. Yeah. So I think I had a chat with them ahead of time where I mentioned <laughs> about the screen as well. A few of our listeners asked about the set for The Underworld. One, yeah. like I was ink, <laughs> like I was ink mm-hmm. even joked that you might have come to their office for inspiration. Can you tell oh, us? I a- actually saw that. <laughs> can you? Maybe we did. <laughs> can you tell us about that set in particular and what inspired it? Yeah, I think the underworld was very much one of those script story centered ideas where the order, the librarians are so fanatically precise that we've had a lot of fun with that over the seasons. In season two, there's a scene where we catch a glimpse of the library snack room. So we did all the lunch, sort of the the lunch bags folded over and stapled with like little names written on in the same black Sharpie, like Ken and Judy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, so that was fun. The previous production designer of the show, Rachel O'Toole, did this amazing set with the card catalogs that go on forever with the Mm -hmm. little name tags and they extended it with visual effects. The underworld is kind of rooted in this idea of obviously we're draining more color out of it and that it's the afterlife, but also because Penny's ultimately working for the library, the the underworld, we sort of leaned into the library type environments where it is very, we pictured it very clean and modern and non-distracting and they're very focused on what they do. One thing that I looked at for inspiration for that was Alphaville. Uh, I really like that film, and it has this very beautiful modern sort of French French uh, modernism, 1960s look, which is very clean mm. and simple. So uh, one scene I really love when Penny is first, Penny Forty is first going to the underworld, and he's walking down this really long corridor where we added some lights at a 45-degree angle above his head and a mirror. So it just feels really long and simple and clean. And, you know, just to s- distinguish it from... The New York look, which is very gritty and can have graffiti and be a bit dirty, and break bills, which is very wood and warm and friendly, we went to a completely opposite pole with that and uh, kept it all grays and blacks and whites and simple wood furniture. And we also needed to distinguish it from different libraries as well. So the Underworld Library is like the most simple. And you can see that, of course, in the set to the elevator as well, where it's just literally like white walls with vertical stripes and a black floor and just keeping it really focused and simple. Do you see that as like an efficiency thing that like these libraries yeah. are? <laughs> I think it comes out of that sort of like the man in the gray flannel suit, you know, those 1950s and 60s kind of ideas of like the worker where mm. you have these beautiful shots of you know, a, almost a, an early cubicle farm, or actually the 1962 movie, I think, called The Apartment with Jack Lemmon, where you see him in his workspace, where they're like, all have the same typewriter. It's like this sea of desks going oh, on to yeah. infinity and this gridded ceiling going on to infinity and all these at the time, men sitting, typing typewriters. And of course, that came up as well in our revision room. 
that we did in uh, right, season right. four was John Scott's episode where we had an actual revision room for the library with a sea of desks and we did a visual effects extension. It was my dream project. We got to extend it with green screen where you have that long several lines of desks with the typewriters called the Cassan 3000. We had a little Easter egg there based on Cassandra, but the typewriters were writing the stories, people's stories automatically through some kind of spell where she's automated that she's writing people's stories. So it got, you know, it can infuse, it's fun when you start to design one environment, but it can start to infuse future related environments as well like that. Yeah. Well, and I'm, so one of the other things that came up in season four in, in, I think it was episode 407, there's that like electrical grid looking thing behind Penny in his office. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that. So we took that out of, you know, the big, when you look at the revision room, for instance, these two sidewalls have this kind of like light up panels, which in our mind have to do with tracking where books have gone. So they're a kind of like, like you're in a kind of control room, you track information. And the trick with Penny's office, it's interesting that you mentioned that because again, getting back to restraints, we, due to that being, we'd had a couple of really big episodes. 406 was, of course, a huge episode. So 407, we were in somewhat of a kind of subtle mode. We didn't want to overbuild. We had to kind of fit this to our schedule on set between, we basically built it between a couple of other sets. It was very, <laughs> we would do a small environment, just telling you behind the curtain of how things go. But we didn't want, like, I didn't want you to be staring at a concrete wall behind Penny. So we were looking for ways to add meaning to the fact that Penny Forty was now sort of moving up the ladder in the mm. underworld. He's starting to lean into his job. He's getting excited about it. He's seriously sort of lecturing people that he thinks are n- newbies about, <laughs> his, you know, how the library works. And so, I, you know, one day I was like, well, what if we just put a piece of that kind of look behind him. And again, it leans into the mid-century. It's slightly engineering-ish, which I think makes sense for the Underworld Library. And it certainly was really fun. I think it kind of, you don't want anyone staring at an actor in front of a blank wall for a long (laughs) period of time, you know? So there's a lot of dialogue in that office. So, and I really love the shot that our director, Sally, and our DP, Ellie, did. You know, the beginning shot where we're establishing that we're in the Underworld and they basically go up over Penny's head and go upside down. There's this wonderful shot that I thought was just a brilliant way to, um, in addition to hopefully the cues of the set and the set design, a brilliant way to say, yep, you're in the underworld now. You're upside down. (laughs) You know, it's really cool. It's funny. Danny, Margot, have you seen Good Omens? Have you been watching that? No, I saw my list of about, yeah. We've only watched like two or three episodes, I think, someone will tell me if this is a later episode than that, I'm sure. Um, But we just watched an episode where um, Crowley, which is David Tennant's character, kind of tries to pull the wool over his superior's eyes by, like, pretending at a penny in that, like, pretending that he was giving a test to his superior. Um, (laughs) And it made me, we just watched it last night and it made me think of that, it made me think of that scene again, that episode. (laughs) It was fantastic, and I'll admit that I didn't see it coming when I was reading the script either. I was like, oh, I was as shocked as anyone. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's awesome. One of our listeners at high underscore Malin, I think I'm saying that right, asked, how do you decide how different places in the show should look, and what are the key differences between them? And you talked about this a little bit already, but I wanted to kind of push you to talk about how that applies to the alternate timelines. Because, right, like you're really looking at the same places at the same locations but the tone is so different from one timeline to the next so like 
There's oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's that episode with the where Quentin is the Beast in season three, where you see like yeah. two versions of Fillory and two versions of the Break Bills Library, and then there's 406, a timeline in a place from this past season, where there's like a really strong dystopian vibe, not just outside when you have all this like barbed wire fences and soldiers and whatever, but also like inside in Stoppard's house and Marina's apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what techniques do you use to differentiate all those different versions of what is otherwise the same set? Yeah, I got it. No, it's another really good question. Um, again, I would say it's really deeply world building based. So mm. we would look at the script and say, for instance, Timeline 23 in episode 311, um, which is a super apocalyptic timeline. Mm. Everybody's dead. You know, everyone that we care about is pretty much dead. Um we decided that and the beast has taken over and that break bills is in shambles. So we went with shambles, you know, we went with, um, the script was indicating that, you know, things are kind of, people are living in survival mode right now. And uh, there's a scene I particularly love in that episode, actually, when we get to go to Dean Fogg's office and yeah. he's in survival mode and he's already been through 23 episodes and I'm paraphrasing, but he does something like, Oh my God, I have to live through 17 more of these, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when they tell him they're from timeline 40, but Basically, it was really fun. We redesigned um, all of our sets to have broken windows. We added some some almost like yellow sickly color to things, like sort of almost a bleach bypass mm. kind of thing where everything started to look less, everyone looks he- less healthy. The environments look less inviting. We added piles of uh, debris. We thought about the story. So again, it's story-based. We're like, we're going to imagine that the heat is turned off. There's no electricity we're not using our, our lights that are our practical lights in our set. We're bringing in work lights. These are sodium vapor work lights, so they have a certain color to them that feels really uncomfortable and harsh. And we made piles of debris out of the furniture because we imagined that battles had taken place here. We even did some battle scars on the set mm. that these guys have been fighting the beast. The beast have won. They've been doing barricades. And, you know, and now they're like living in the living room of the penthouse and there's like bedrolls left over. And you just you really want to feel the story. It's a good example of what I was saying was where the set is a metaphor for what that story yeah. is about. And that story is about this is where it went really bad. This is why Jane Chatwin kept rewinding time. This is why she went, they ever went to the effort is because these realities are not turning out well, trying to get to reality 40 where it actually has, you know, people continue to, you know, they survive the beast. So that was really deeply rooted in apocalypse story. 406 was really fascinating. Of course, Mm. that was that on steroids for us. That was our most challenging episode from a timeline point of view. And one of the challenges in that actually was how to differentiate timeline 36, which is the sort of magic hedge witches are being suppressed from timeline 23, which is a flat out apocalypse. Because we did want timeline 36 in episode 406 to feel to some extent militarized, but not full on apocalyptic. So when we have Penny and Marina exit Stoppard's workshop to come out and we first see timeline 36, which was one of my funnest moments also ever. You're you're hitting all the episodes that were so (laughs) fun for me to work on. When they first come out of the workshop, we did some propaganda. We thought the difference is that militarized versus apocalyptic is that militarized has obviously military equipment. We have tanks and soldiers, but we also have propaganda. This is an intentional yeah. sort of change to the world as opposed to like the byproduct of a, a battle and an apocalypse. So we had these propaganda posters that were really fun to make that we did things about 
magic being illegal. Like they have a giant yeah. sign. There's a shot where they pan off the roof and you see some soldiers up there and like unauthorized magic is not allowed. We had some posters that we had one that was really fun, which had kind of a happy, healthy family and a family in jail saying, you know, basically good families don't allow family members to practice magic. And we have a lot of fun with the Easter eggs like that on our show where we're using supportive visuals to support the story, whether we whether everyone's going to see it or not, we always want to take care of those details. So Timeline 36, we set up barricades and tanks. And of course, Penny and Marina do that walk through the new reality and they realize that they've gone to the wrong timeline pretty quickly. Um, and we tried to translate those things into Stoppard's workshops and the different, uh, every take every environment and be aware of the storytelling in each one. It's, it's interesting that you talk um, about like, both the similarities and differences between 23 and 36, like them both having that mm-hmm. kind of, um, I can't remember what the word you just used was, but that kind of like, um, dystopian, I guess. Yeah, I guess it is. Both of them have a little bit of a dystopian vibe. Cause one of the things that I noticed, um, going back and looking at them again is they're both dark, kind of like you mentioned, right? Like they're both a little darker mm-hmm. than timeline 40. Um, but one differentiating factor to me is that, other than the darkness, I don't think um, Timeline 23 feels like, I don't feel like the spaces feel smaller than they do in Timeline 40. Yeah. But in Timeline 36, they really do, because I think there's like all that, all those things in there as well. It feels like people are kind of like closing themselves in. That's really a great observation. That is what we try to do. For instance, the Physical Kids Cottage, which if I refer to it as a PKC, we call it the PKC here. It's an anagram, but Physical Kids Cottage. Uh, frequently on the show, by the way, we'll, we'll, especially if people have started new for the season, we'll say things like, oh, and the PKC, and they're like, excuse me? <laughs> but the Physical Kids Cottage, um, that was a challenge, d- distinguishing it between Timeline 23 and 36. And of course, we go into it in both of them. In Timeline 23, it has barricaded furniture, and you can see there's no there's no power anymore. In Timeline 36, what we did is we actually took military signs with like bullet holes in them and used those to cover mm. the windows. And we just leaned into like army rations to eat and a little bit more feeling of like military style bedrolls, and that people were camping out there. And it's not so much that you think that you're going to get killed in that timeline. It's more that you're trying to hide from the authorities. So it's just like a different, a different vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really liked it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I, I, I love that. I liked 406 very much, including, I have to say, The Mummy. That was one yes. of my highlights. <laughs> yeah. was doing the... <laughs> it was just so different that the rest of the episode was just like so fun to kind of take this little sort of breather and do this fun scene with the mummy and the kind of storage room for the uh, museum was really fun as well. Yeah, it was a great episode. (laughs) So Adam had a question about the tip of the iceberg effect too. All those details that you don't necessarily notice the first time that you're watching, but that contribute to the world. How do you know when you've hit the right amount of detail? Do you ever struggle with time or budget? (laughs) I guess we heard a little bit about that second part, but... (laughs) Yeah. We, We definitely do have constraints on that. And I would actually answer that pretty simply and say, we put as much detail layers meaning in as we have time and budget for. I think Mm -hmm. that pretty much everyone working on the show loves the show and is fascinated by the world of the books and the world of the show. And we're all very enamored of doing the best work and taking it as far as we can. So I would say that we're all the people that like we sprint to the finish line on every single episode and do the best we can to put in the right amount of detail. There are definitely and detail and layers. And there are times when we know that we have to 
we have to lean less into one set or environment so that we can accomplish one. Like if we have a new set or environment for an episode that's establishing a new world, uh, we will probably try to sort of funnel our resources into that as much as we can. The pyramid effect, did you describe it as a, uh, the it's iceberg the effect? iceberg, I that's think. A, <laughs> that's a really interesting way to describe it. And I, I think that's, a, that's one of the things that's really gratifying about working on the show, that you can do things with like careful detail and people will notice. Um, I saw something where we had changed the title credits in season four to having the order of the library of the Netherlands logo mm-hmm, on it, mm-hmm. which was important for our season. And we put it on the floor in the revision room. So you knew where you were and it showed up, um, on our title credits. And I noticed on one of the, I think it was a Facebook page, which is kind of interesting sometimes to sort of check in and on see what people mm-hmm. are saying. Uh, somebody had noticed that and pointed it out and it was absolutely fascinating for me to go, wow, like that's really so gratifying for us to know that people notice and care and it's helping the intention that we have, which is to help you know where you are quite quickly using some of these details. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does resonate with people and it you know, hopefully works most of the time. So that was really, really interesting. Are you involved in those in those title sequences? Because that's like, we have talked about that too, about how they change every season. Oh, they're so no, cool. No, I'm not, but I love them. <laughs> I find it fascinating. And I just love that they pulled that, that out of there. It was great. Well, and I think they do things that sort of speak back to some of the other work that that you and your team are doing throughout the season. So like mm-hmm. we we're just talking about how the underworld and the library are supposed to be these like very rigidly ordered clean places. And in mm-hmm. season four, I noticed that they fixed the broken bricks, not just got rid of the graffiti, but like fixed the broken window. Um, yes, all exactly. the bricks were like cleaned up. Um, and it was very much like straight lines other than that one order of the Netherlands library seal on there. And the door yeah. was nicer and too. I was, right? like, <laughs> I was so excited when I saw that because yeah, that's definitely something that we just we don't have any forewarning on it. But it is a bit of the synergistic sort of way the show works that everyone sort of influences everyone else and everyone's kind of keeping an eye on what other people are doing to to get inspiration from it. Yeah, yeah. So on a kind of not really related <laughs> note, <laughs> yep. El Taru Noble asked. Have you ever had to restart a design because it wasn't working? And have you ever completed something but it didn't fit into the story until later? Or have you ever designed something that ended up being used somewhere else? Oh, absolutely. And and talking about design, starting a design that doesn't work. I mean, I would say that design is very much an unfolding process. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's ever really any right answer in design. And I think that um, it's extremely open-ended. So... In that process, like I'll read a script or an outline and start to percolate something that it either uh, inspires me toward or what I think would be appropriate for the deeper layer of the story. And sometimes I'll send a pitch to Sarah and John and Henry and the gang and say, you know, this kind of really makes me think of sort of a modernist kind of 50s mid-century. What do you think about that? And uh, they will sometimes say, yep, that's what we're thinking. But other times, and I find this really fascinating, and sometimes when my initial kind of thought, suggestion, or questions about a design are not hitting exactly what they're thinking. It actually is really interesting because many times they're thinking of something that takes it so much further or mm. deeper. Like they're, I would say that they are a huge part of the design process of this show. Um, and for instance, uh, our penthouse set, Sarah was very careful to make sure that it felt very young and fresh. 
And so I think the first illustrations that we sent for that, everyone liked the architecture, but felt like let's, and she sent some, some examples of really bright colors and things. And because we hadn't always done, that was a bit off brand for our yeah, show. Yeah. I think it was a more modern, youthful, fresh environment. It kind of like, we needed a bit of prodding to go, oh, it's, this is a great, you know, this is great inspiration and really interesting. And yeah, we are going off brand and we want to lean into this. So that was really exciting. So sometimes not having it be the right pitch the first time, especially with such like collaborative, great, kind people that we're working with here is not always the worst thing. It can actually lead you to many, many times lead you to something more interesting. Hmm. And there was a second part to that question as well, which was, I think, do things that we use end up getting used somewhere else? And I would say all the time, a lot of our sets, because we're an ongoing TV series that you have resources and we repurpose things. We take things that we've used for certain locations and we, we like to conserve as well. We don't want to just throw things away when we've done done with them. So at times we do reuse components or repurpose parts of sets into other things, especially if it's the same environment. If it's a library set and we have the card catalogs from the long hallway, we want to have some card catalogs, say in Zelda's office, we will take some of those and then we'll live again. And we also have um, a sign for break bills. It's on it's on wheels and it has signage on both sides that we change out sometimes, but we often refer to it as the hardest working sign in show business <laughs> because <laughs> whenever we do break bills, we tend to, it's, you know, we'll change it up and do different things, but this sign tends to come along with us. It's like an old friend. It's held up <laughs> for a long time now. It's a hard working sign. Are there any sort of examples like that where, where it will cross worlds, like go from Fillory to Earth or... Anything like that? Like any, you mentioned that the card catalog goes from kind of generic library to Zelda's office, but is there anything more radical than that? I would have to say probably not usually. And I think that's a byproduct of how sort of firm we try to be with ourselves about defining and distinguishing mm. the worlds. Um, I think if we did something like that, it would be very intentionally with a story-driven purpose. Unless it's like a prop or something like, oh, actually an interesting example would be Josh when he goes to Fillory. It could be as simple as Josh's baking. There's, you know, Josh would bake something in Fillory, but he would still, it would still look a little bit like earth baking because (laughs) he's got, you know, he loves baking so much and like ways he likes to make things. So I suppose that we, you know, sometimes when our earth folks go to Fillory, we will sometimes have them doing something in a slightly more earth way, but that might be more costumes and props than set design. Yeah, I was actually, I, I noticed a few of Josh's um, costumes yeah. last season that they they yeah. were clearly Felorian, but they had like, you know, they'd have like an earth turned collar or something like that. Or <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, 100%. I think if anyone's probably going to do that, it would probably be Josh. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would be just the only examples of it. But definitely with the set design and the set dressing, we try as much as humanly possible to keep it very distinctive from each other. Yeah. Oh, this is this is totally off the wall, but there's a thing that I wanted to ask you about that happened last season, and I'm trying to remember, I can't remember what episode it was in, I believe it was something that was happening in the Library of the Underworld, where um, they were looking at some chart, and it looked like a seismograph to me. Ah, yes, that was the chart of uh, the notion that there is meant to be a certain titrated outflow of magic from the library. But Zelda was discovering that Everett was lying and saying that there was actually more than there was because he's stealing it. Mm. Uh, is that correct? That it was actually I think they that had it right. on Earth and they, they looked at it in the dining room of the penthouse, yeah. I believe. Yes. Yeah, you're and right. Yes. 
And because it related to the library, we intentionally keep those types of props in a kind of simple sort of mid-century style. So we, we designed it to kind of, yeah, look like a sort of mid, mid-century seismic, simple, this is not a computer, this is the library. They don't have computers. You know, mm-hmm. they, uh, it was a kind of like they use magic, like they, they move things from place to place using pneumatic tubes and canisters and they're yeah, sort of yeah. holding to that, that type of, yeah. So we did that on purpose to make it feel a little bit the pneumatic tubes always made me think of Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's really interesting. And, and another show that I would say that I've been watching that I find really intriguing is Counterpart. I don't know if you've seen it, but it has, it reminds me, I think what they're dealing with is similar to some of the issues we deal with where they have, uh, would it be a spoiler to say what the show is about? No. <laughs> it's fine. About it. <laughs> it basically, it has a lot of, uh, it has two worlds. It's basically that uh, an accident occurred in the 80s where Berlin split into two realities. And it's utterly fascinating for me because it reminds me a lot of the challenges that we face the magicians, that they have these two Berlins that have slowly been drifting apart since hmm. I think 1987. Hmm. And so they have things like the equivalent of our decisions that they have to make all the time about how do the computers look different in the two worlds and how do phones. And that's, that's, that's two worlds, but it's sort of, it's intriguing to see because I, I enjoy watching it to see the decisions that they made to think about our show and the decisions that we make and how we're sort of facing the same kinds of issues, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we had a question from Kath uh, about the evolution of sets that show up season after season. And she was particularly interested in Fillory, which I, I think she's right, right? Like in the first season, it feels much more fairy tale. Um, mm-hmm. And then in later seasons, it, it starts to feel a little bit more like a real world. Yeah. And I think, again, that sto- that's uh, something that was intentional on the part of the show in the sense of, you know how Quentin, when, when he and Julia are lying under the table and looking at the map of Fillory, it's mm-hmm. just this beautiful thing that has been with him his whole life. He's like ultimate fanboy. Fillory to him is something that will solve everything and make him happy, which we know that nothing in life can solve everything and make you happy. And Fillory is as complex as any other world. And so when they arrive in season two, or at the end of season one, but in season two, there's so much magic. Magic is plentiful. You know, the farmers, there's a scene at the beginning of season two where farmers don't even know how to water crops. I mean, they've never had to really do anything. Everything has come easily. But then magic is shut down from the wellspring we really wanted to make sure that it felt like Fillory was becoming more of a real place. Like magic is drained. Yeah. We stopped having, we tend to use feathers in the air when magic is yeah, abundant in Fillory that. to make it feel. Yes. And we toned down, we added a lot of greens when magic was abundant in Fillory, lots of greens and flowers. And we, we amped up what is already the beautiful environments in Vancouver to extra hyper real, hmm. hyper real, hyper bright. And then when magic was gone. Um, it was less. We um, we took that all away. So suddenly we're in a forest, in a world that can feel like start to feel more like Earth because we've taken away the magic. So actually, speaking of Fillory and forests, I think was it season two, the opium forest one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the flying, flying forest. forest. So um, funny. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about what you did there to make that feel different from the other sort of magical forests? That one was actually, we shot in a forest in Vancouver that has a type of like moss tree. Mm. I couldn't remember the exact sort of phyla or whatever the name is for it, but it's a tree that actually 
has like sort of a dripping moss, like literally that has grown over the branches of the tree. So we didn't actually change that over much. We actually were just lucky. We found a location that suited us for that. Yeah. So there's that, there's an astonishing variety of landscapes around Vancouver, which we've made use of, including a lot of like evergreen forests like that, but also some more farm type lands. And, you know, it's been very, it's been, I know that was one of the main reasons they chose to come to Vancouver to film here was because of the potential of doing all the different fillery. And I think that that's something we've tried to make the most of all the different fillery looks. Yeah. Yeah. The one that was in um, episode six in season three with the mushrooms and the mushroom fields. Oh yeah. I really enjoyed. We found a really great location for that where we were able to kind of find a hill and get back really far with the camera. And there's a partial visual effects extension, but to kind of show all these mushrooms growing in this like previously pristine Fullerian landscape, you know, we're just very lucky in Vancouver that we have so many options to choose from to do those kinds of scenes. Were those actual mushrooms or <laughs> were they? Well, basically we designed a kind of mushroom top and then this kind of embryonic sack underneath mm-hmm. for the fairy mm-hmm. babies. That was really fun too. And when I saw our special effects makeup, crew came and they put like a little robotic the one that Margot pulls out of the ground you know where it's just like epic kind of like yeah, yeah. gross out face and she's just like Ugh. and um they actually are special effects makeup people designed a little robotic creature that was radio <laughs> control like sort of remote controlled to go inside this kind of viscous semi-transparent sack that was fantastic <laughs> and it was quite that was you know one of the bigger design challenges was trying to make mushrooms that looked a bit fairy tale, but could actually be real. Uh, many of our challenges in the show span that line, actually. Well, they did actually, they reminded me of a very particular type of mushroom, which I was trying to think of earlier today, and I, I couldn't think of, but it's like this very bulbous mushroom. and Toadstool. No, 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 no. It's not a toadstool, actually, because when you... Um, it's not? Their sort of defining feature is that when you, I don't know, touch them too much, when you move them um, or like ta- or try to take them out of the ground, they explode. Um. (laughs) there was a particular mushroom that we used as a reference in that i'm trying to remember the name i want to say i I can't remember the exact name but what we liked about it was yeah it it had this like mushroom shape but was a little bit fanciful Uh i I wonder i didn't know about the mushroom that explodes i forget what they're called i'll send it to you when i figure it out (laughs) well no no no. it's um it's it's to spread the spores because the spores are all inside in that type of mushroom and so like when you remove it from the ground, it explodes and the spores go everywhere. And it just spreads everywhere. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was going to say that just sort of apropos of that, that sort of design challenge of doing something that looks like it's a bit fanciful, but also could be real, like getting back to the kind of um, what John McNamara, I think, has said about our show is that it's a fantasy about reality. Mm. So one of the big challenges that sort of surrounding all the conversation about design on our show is that we always want to be careful that I would say that anywhere we shoot could feel like a location, even if we're building a set mm-hmm. in a different timeline or a different world or past or future. We always want it to feel like it could be real. That requires detail and attention to finishes and well, all of those things. Yeah, and just, I mean, thinking about what you were saying about the evolution of Fillory over the seasons, right? I mean, you were talking mm-hmm. about how Quentin thinks this is going to solve all his problems, but he also thinks of it in this kind of like fairy tale fantasy kind of way. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that like his first encounter there is something that is very traditional fairy tale. And then as he starts to see it differently, it, it like physically becomes different. That's a type of almost like, I would say like a subjective 
viewpoint on reality mm-hmm. that we also bring at times into our show where we're seeing it through somebody's point of view. So I think that was a big part of when we lose magic, we tried very hard to have everything desaturate. We took the color down even more. So New York, that was always our New York look, which is earth, but not rig bells. Uh, you yeah. know, we just took the color out of the environments and make everything a bit more, more bleak for that season so that when magic is gone, you can really feel that. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming close to the end of our time, but before we go, several folks... Shout outs to High King Elliot, Lauren Epps too, and Nat and Fillery also wanted to know about your favorite designs, both from the most recent season and overall, which sets or episodes stand out to you? Thank you for that question, because it's always kind of interesting to think about that. From the most recent season, I absolutely loved doing the Desert Musical episode. Mm. I 410, all that hard, glossy armor. That was actually incredibly challenging for us for weather reasons and logistical reasons and versus practical set reasons it was we actually swapped yeah it was very very challenging because we were trying to schedule it when this just shows you don't trust your weather app or weather anything (laughs) we tried to schedule it for the best possible weather but of course we were foiled by nature and it did it there was um one weekend, unfortunately, where we had set part of our setup on a Friday night and then it just poured. So we were all out there on Saturday and, you know, knee high rain boots trying to sort of figure out what to do. So it was, it was really challenging and we had to sort of partially, uh, we had to deal with a lot of nature. There were bears on that set. I think David Reed mentioned yeah. that as well in one of a post or something. He's like, oh, <laughs> you know, our, our brave greens people were out dealing with that. And, you know, we're, we're trained for those kinds of things because we do shoot a lot in remote locations. But this, this episode had everything. It had a really challenging story. It also had the escape room, which I just absolutely oh, loved. Right. But honestly, doing that village and trying to design a tent that looked nomadic but also distinguishing the worlds where we sort of had a couple of different like scales of society and a tent that had a different unique shape to it. And we carved these poles that I, that was a, that was an instance of like our amazing crew where we put out this beautiful carved pole design that I was kind of hoping we could get something remotely like that. And then our sculpting department just went and like reproduced these both beautiful sketch that I, like they just took it so to the last detail, which was amazing. So that was an extremely gratifying set and just very different. What I loved about that is that we hadn't done that before. It was a completely new world, really interesting. And then the kind of technicalities of how to film in a sort of a ravine that we helped it feel more deserty and we built some sand dunes and we helped with some drainage. And it was just really fascinating that overall, not just the design of the, the village, but the filming of it and how to make that feel like a real village in the mm-hmm. desert and fillery. The rainy desert. <laughs> So that's this season. Are there any from past seasons that you'd want to sort of draw attention to? That was, so that was from 410. That was uh, from previous seasons to season four. Um, Boy, my favorite designs. There's been so many. I mean, I absolutely (laughs) love doing the Munchak because you don't always think that in your life you're going to get to design a boat that's sort of a living entity and a boat kind of together. Um, I love that. And I knew from the minute that we were doing a boat that it wasn't going to be just a boat because it's the magician. So that was really, really fun. I also loved in the first two episodes of season three doing After Island Village, which was really fun. Just doing a kind of a lesser scale. In Fillory, we see the throne room. We see the royalty. It's always fun to go to other parts of Fillory because it is sort of open-ended. And this was the After Island Village where they weren't 
wealthy. These are people that are just living on the land. They're just getting by. And we did, you know, we did those fun huts where we actually, yeah, exactly. And we grew grass up over the, over the roofs. And it was really sweet to try to get a sense of their life and to kind of care about these people and want to make sure that we felt that we were. So we did like, you know, we had areas where they were making boats and we put a lot of detail into that set that I don't know that it was necessarily featured, but if you don't have it, it doesn't do, feel real. You know, that's the fun about some of these sets, especially filleries. You do need to lean into the completeness of the world building, even if it's not about those background details. But if you don't have them, it won't read like a real environment. Mm. So we designed a beautiful a fence to surround it that we had some like carvings in it that were reminded us of the architecture of the houses and tried to really make it into its own complete little village with its own architectural typology. So last question, also from Lauren Nepps, because um, I think it's a good note to end on. What advice would you give to an aspiring production designer? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, it's a fantastically amazing job, so keep keep going you know, <laughs> to get there. Um, boy, production designing is something that you can arrive at from so many ways. My, my path was I actually went to architecture school and was an architect originally, oh, cool. which is a pretty common path. Yeah, and... Um, then I went through sort of working my way up from set designing and art directing in the art department. So I think that there's two ways you can become a production designer. I think, well, there's infinite ways, but two main paths are just start production designing, just take your creativity, work on small films, work on anything and learn as you go and learn from mentors and ask lots of questions and kind of invent yourself. That's one pathway that people go through and they start doing larger projects. Another very common path is to study a form of design. There are some production design schools. There's not very many. There's one in London, there's LA that you can actually study to become a production designer. I haven't met very many people that went through those programs, but um, certainly that's a good path. But you can also do what a lot of people do, which is do architecture or interior design or industrial design, hmm. you know, get a design background. Theater design is another really good background. You can learn about building typologies and environments and drafting, which is important, how to design sets. And, you know, the trick with that is that there's a jump to going into film, which the jump from any form of design to film is, of course, sets are not buildings. They're, yeah. They have walls that need to be pulled out to pulled out to film in. They have different needs. So I honestly think that the probably the best advice I would give would be to look into the production design programs that they have. Um, there's a few really good ones. And to, to do that, that would be the most direct, informative way, I think, to get into it. So now that I know you have an architecture background, I want to ask you about the Munchak yeah. just one more time. Did did you guys like sure. have a boat that you bought and then outfitted or is that built from scratch? We sure did. <laughs> well, the interior was built from scratch and of course we tardised it. So uh, the exterior was much right. smaller than the interior because it had to be for the purposes of filming. Tardised bigger on the inside. <laughs> yeah, tardised bigger on the inside, exactly. Um, so we did. We actually, that was so fun that we got to go boat shopping. So we, we started to kind of see which boats were out there and... Um, our producer, Mitch, was kind of sending us, before we even started the season, he was kind of sending us links to interesting boats out in the world. And <laughs> we knew that we knew the type of boat that we wanted to sort of start with. And then we found this fantastic, I want to call it the Munchak, because I just feel like it is the Munchak, but it wasn't <laughs> actually named that before. But we found this fantastic, I think it was a 1950s Norwegian 
boat that was a uh, bit of an icebreaker, like it had had a purpose. So it wasn't just a yacht. It felt a little working boat-ish. So we found this fantastic boat and then um, we started to add to it, which was we added the swirls, which were my kind of idea about the energy of the tree. We had mm. them down in the set as well, that I, the idea of the tree translating her energy back to the boat. Um, we added the the Mount Jack deer sculpture to the front, which we just, that was really fun to do that sculpture. And then we changed the sails to red and painted it and added, uh, we actually painted a wood deck onto the deck to make it feel period. And it was really, really lovely. We added a lot of teak detailing and wood detailing to it, which um, to give it the feeling that it could be made in a pre-industrial culture like fillery. <laughs> so yeah, it was great. We got to go boat shopping and <laughs> and make this boat. And we got a really, really fun season that season because we had a lot of boat work. So we all got to see some parts of the province that we haven't necessarily seen before and shoot in different locations and kind of be with the Munchak, which was really fun. Well, so that's my last official question. But I do have to ask about your dog, who I think I caught a glimpse of yesterday when we oh, were Oh, my doing dog! The... <laughs> um, yeah, yes, tell us about dog. your dog. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. One of our writers, Christina Strange, she has the same. I think her dog is a mixture. Uh, my dog is called, well, it looks like the word is Kieshond, K-E-E-S-H-O-N-D, but uh -huh. it's a Dutch word. So it's, I think, pronounced actually Kieshond. Mm. Um, he's a hilarious dog. That, they're not a very common breed, but I wish they were. They're just absolutely lovely. But he's just a giant 45-pound fuzzball that looks like <laughs> a wolf if he got really fuzzy. And... <laughs> Absolutely sweet. And his name is Joe, Uncle Joe. He's named after my brother-in-law by my daughter who was six at the time. Aww. And he's two and a half years old now. And he's just like my best buddy. Yeah, he's just <laughs> great. I mean, I love working in film is, uh, you know, it's just great having a dog. It was, just seems to go really well with the film life, you know? Yeah. Did did I see him yesterday? I didn't think about it until after the fact. At first, I thought it you was like sure a scarf. <laughs> I intentionally, when we were doing a little run through, a technical run through, I actually intentionally kind of turned this guy camera so you could see Joe, but he was jumping and so excited that I thought, oh, maybe she didn't really see him. I was going to introduce him, but he was like too excited. I saw him, <laughs> but, but definitely. I definitely thought he was like a fur boa or something at first. <laughs> so they're fluffy. Just, I don't know if you've seen the breed Danny, but they're just, I wanted to get a dog that was chill. So I kind of Googled couch potato dogs that were like good with younger <laughs> children and like, they're like, this dog has no odor, is mostly hypoallergenic, doesn't drool, and is super chill. And I was like, yes, that's for me. What I didn't realize is that you have to brush the dog like two hours a day. So not quite I'm exaggerating, but he's lovely. But we actually eventually, when I sprained my wrist once, basically trying to brush him, we now send him to the groomers. But other than yeah. that, and that's probably why they're not the most popular breed, um, but they're just delightful, lovely dogs. Do you guys have pets? We do. I have two cats. I have oh. Two Lovely. small dogs. I have a 13-pound a terrier mix um, named Hercules, which tells you of a little course. bit something about his personality. Yeah. And a six-pound chihuahua mix uh, named Gracie, <laughs> um, who is just ridiculous. And she... Um, uh, we get videos of her all the time when she's playing with us because she likes to growl, but her growl is the growl of a six-pound dog. So I was like... Oh, yeah, they don't know. That's <laughs> actually a funny story. Is my dog Joe got to be in a movie? Sort of a friend of mine was uh, design was uh, directing a movie this year, and they needed a dog. And so I offered Joe up. And Joe is normally the chillest, chillest 
dog, but for some reason he just like got so excited about being on set. It was really <laughs> cute to see. He just would like go up to everyone and just bark at their face. He was just like, oh, it's great to be here. I love it. Who are you? What are you doing? Like, he was just super excited. So ultimately we got the scene and it all worked out okay, but it was really kind of just hilarious to see my dog on the film set. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think that's pretty much everything. Um, so, Margo, thank you so much for chatting with us. This has been delightful. Thank you. <laughs> what a oh, way to get so into high. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's lovely yeah. to meet you both. <laughs> you too. And listeners, thank you for all of your questions. You had such great ones, and it was so nice to see you all so engaged for a hiatus episode. I also just want to plug something really quick while we have you here. I helped organize something really cool for fans of the show that have felt hurt by the finale and are still mourning Quentin. So at Not Cool Co. and at Basic Stuff Mag and myself uh, created a Quentin shirt. Mostly all the artwork was done by Not Cool Co. though. She's amazing. She's really talented. Very talented. It's a really beautiful shirt, and you should all check it out. 100% of the proceeds go to the Trevor Project, which is a lovely LGBTQ charity. Check it out either on my Twitter at Hedgewishes or Basic Stuff Mag. We have it pinned to our Twitters right now, but I'll also tweet a link out on the pod. Yeah, so definitely do that. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Actually, one one final note I wanted to say, if I can jump in, yeah, is that you reminded me of that, Danny, uh, is that I just wanted to say how amazingly talented and perceptive our fans are. I mean, I've just, I wasn't really a Twitter person, but I kind of got into Twitter over the show and I've seen so much of the artwork that people have made and it's just exquisite. We have such a talented fan base and it's so appreciated. And there's many times where we'll actually go, have you seen this? This is so beautiful. And like the dedication of people that have made like replicas of the keys we had for season three or like this beautiful illustration of Marina with like that you can see her pain at times and like mm. just understanding the story and caring about the story and like the talent level in the fan base is just through the roof and something I absolutely adore and really enjoy too seeing that but I just wanted to say thank you to the fans for just being so you know attentive to and loving for the show uh, you know and for paying such close close attention to what we do it is seen and very very appreciated. Well, I actually think I know exactly which Marina picture you're talking oh, about. It's that one with incredible. the like rib with cage ribs. exposed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Brilliant. And the gold is just incredible. Yeah, that yeah. was incredible. I can't <laughs> remember the name Amazing of that job. artist, but no, me neither. It's, I, um, I, I, her handle's Hail Mojito. Ah, oh, yes, okay. you're right. H E I L. Uh-huh. Stunning work mm-hmm. and to not exclude everyone else too because there's just been like exceptional work on so many people's parts. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling that out. And yeah, listeners, do check out the t-shirt. It's beautiful. It supports a really great cause. So I think, um, yeah, definitely worth your look. And um, with that, it's time to wrap up. So yeah, if you want to keep up with us over the hiatus or any time, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Physical Kids Pod. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Mind slide. <laughs>